Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to our last HR forum of 2012. Uh, today we are uh, focusing on uh, discrimination and uh, quality issues in the workplace. Um, sort of looking at some uh, key developments um, and some key themes we're seeing in the cases. Uh, some of the themes we're seeing, I suppose, reflect the, the economic climate at the moment. Um, so there are some issues around, um, to what extent, costs can play into justification of discrimination issues. Um, and perhaps that's playing in as well to the impact of the latest changes proposed by the government to this area of employment law. Uh, some of the themes we see uh, reflect the complexity of the legal landscape now, the difficulty of balancing the rights of one employee um, against those of another. Um, and, and perhaps that is the overall theme today, the, the issue of balance in inequality and discrimination, whether it's employer versus employee or employee versus employee. Um, presenting with me today is my fellow partner, Catherine Dukes. Um, we'll be talking around these issues. We'll then break for coffee um, and then have a case study to look at some how some of the issues play out in practice. Um, and then we'll finish off with uh, some key takeaways. So let's start... Uh, by looking at uh, discrimination um, and the issue when can cost provide a, a defence to discrimination type of claims. Starting with the basics, there are now nine uh, protected characteristics set out on the slide there, the ones you'll be familiar with mostly. Um, there is potential that's going to increase. Um, there's been a case reported in the, in the past few days um, involving an individual called Mr Redfern who brought a claim against Serco after he was dismissed um, because he was a member of the BNP and he claimed that was um, unfair because he was being dismissed because of his political beliefs. Um, and the European Court of Human Rights said uh, political beliefs are not adequately protected in the UK. So we may at some point in the future see a change to the law um, to see political beliefs being added the list of protected characteristics, who knows. Um, and what types of conduct are prohibited in relation to protected characteristics? Uh, direct discrimination, less favourable treatment on the grounds of a protected characteristic. Indirect, where you apply an unjustified provision uh, criterion or practice, which has a disproportionate impact on somebody. Harassment, the sort of conduct that gets the Daily Mail very excited. Uh, Victimisation, where you treat someone less favourably because they brought a claim or are threatening to bring a claim or helping someone else to bring a claim, failing to make reasonable adjustments in disability context or discrimination arising from disability, that's less favourable treatment in connection with disability, so that might be less favourable treatment um, because of some sickness absence, for example. Now, when can cost provide a defence to discrimination claims? Um, well, the first question is, when can you justify discrimination claims at all? Um, you're never going to be able to put forward justification defences for direct discrimination other than possibly indirect, other than possibly age discrimination or harassment claims or victimisation claims. Um, but you can put forward justification defences and therefore cost may play into these defences for uh, direct age discrimination indirect discrimination, discrimination arising from disability and a failure to make reasonable adjustments. So if you want to defend one of these types of claims, what do you need to do? You need to show justification. That means showing a proportionate means, you've got a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. And I suppose the question is, can cost be a legitimate aim? 
say for example if an employer says we don't want to have flexible working in the workplace because it's too expensive to run um, is that a legitimate aim um, it's potentially indirect discrimination because it's likely to affect women more than men uh, because they're more likely to have childcare responsibilities but does the cost um, provide a justification to that um, well the starting point is that cost alone isn't going to be a defence uh, to indirect discrimination. That comes from a case um, over t a little over 10 years ago called Cross Against British Airways. Um, it arose out of pressure that was put on British Airways um, to increase its retirement age. And of course this was um, before the days that the default retirement age had been abolished. Um, and BA was put under pressure by its unions to increase the retirement age from 55 to 60. Um, employees who were recruited before 1971 already had a retirement age of 60. BA decided to stick with the status quo when the claimant said, well, actually, the status quo disproportionately affects female employees because the vast majority of employees um, in this group before 1971 were male. And in defending its position, in defending the status quo, BA said, um, well, it's going to cost us a lot of money um, to change it. It's going to have an impact on our pension scheme's revenue approved status, and it's going to cause us organisational difficulties. And what the Employment Appeal Tribunal said is, yeah, cost can be a factor in defending discrimination, but it can't be the only factor. What you need is something that's being called cost plus. You need costs and something else. So that was the position back in 2005. Uh, does that hold good in these uh, times of austerity, or are tribunals moving away from the cost plus requirement? Um, well, the position seems to be that, yes, to some extent, tribunals are moving away from cost plus um, more towards the idea that the costs can at a certain point provide a justification um, for indirect um, discrimination. So we have an example of that in this 2011 case involving the land registry. Uh, the land registry were making redundancies and as part of that they offered a voluntary redundancy package which was different slightly for under 50 year olds as opposed to over 50 year olds. Uh, and, and the package included an option to take early retirement on an unreduced uh, pension the revenue had set their budget, the, sorry, the, the registry had set their budget um, for, for the redundancies, which was £12 million, but they had so many volunteers, so many people clear, keen to leave the workplace on this package, that it was going to cost them £19 million if they accepted all the, uh, all the volunteers. So what they did was they just accepted the cheapest employees, which would be the older employees, um, because it was cheaper to give the older employees an unreduced um, early pe retirement pension than the younger ones. And the younger claimant said this was indirect age discrimination. Um, and the Employment Appeal Tribunal in this case disagreed, and they said the land registry actually had no real alternative here. They had, to, uh, they had a budget, and they had, to, and they had to stick with it, and they didn't have much flexibility as to how they, they met that. Um, and they were influenced by the fact that the land registry is a, it's a statutory body, and it's got to be self-financing, so it doesn't take money from the taxpayer. It's supposed to be self-financing, and it's supposed to balance its books. So what we see here, actually, um, is a form of indirect age discrimination <coughs> which um, has been accepted on the grounds, apparently, of costs alone. Um, the EAT didn't expressly address this issue of whether you need cost plus, um, but effectively that's what seems to have happened. And then in a similar vein, we have this case which was reported um, earlier this year, um, Woodcock against the Primary Care Trust in, in Cumbria. The case arose out of a merger of a number of primary care trusts. Um, Mr Woodcock had been the chief executive of one of them 
As a result of the merger, he was placed at risk of redundancy. The redundancy consultation process was delayed initially uh, because they were looking for alternative employment, and then subsequently because he was dragging his feet. And he wasn't dragging his feet just for the fun of it, um, because he knew that if he could stay in employment until after the age of 50, he was going to get an enhanced um, early retirement pension. Um, at, at some point, the primary care trust realised what he was onto um, and dismissed him so he wouldn't um, get to age of 50. Um, and they did this because they knew it was going to cost between half a million and a million pounds to give him this early um, enhanced pension. Mr Woodcock claimed this was age discrimination and he said, you're just dis dismissing me so I don't achieve this age and get this, this pension. And the Court of Appeal disagreed and said, actually, no, it's not... It's although it is indirect age discrimination, it's justified, and there is a cost plus justification. They said here, there is the desire to save costs, um, to save between half a million and a million pounds, and also what the trust wanted to do is give effect to its intention um, to make Mr. Woodcock redundancy uh, redundant. So um, they're saying actually there's cost and there's something else, which might sound like going back to the previous position under the 2005 case, but actually I don't think the reasoning really bears scrutiny because the issue here is um, not whether they were making re him redundant, but when they were making him redundant. And the fact is they chose to make him redundant at a particular time because of the age issue and because of the cost issue. Um, so although the Court of Appeal doesn't quite want to say it here, I think in, in reality, again, we've got a situation where uh, cost is, is being used as a justification for indirect discrimination. So where does that leave us in terms of cost indirect discrimination? Um, clearly it's better if you can point to cost and something else um, as a justification for indirect discrimination. Um, but there does seem to be a move away from it. There does seem to be more of an acceptance in redundancy type situations um, as cost of justification, which is, I suppose is understandable because redundancy situations are all about saving money. Um, and interestingly, you do seem to see more flexibility from tribunals and courts um, in the context of age discrimination, perhaps in other forms of, of discrimination. They seem to be more willing to accept and justify age discrimination than other forms. So that's indirect discrimination. What about reasonable adjustments and, and how does cost play into reasonable adjustments? Um, as a reminder... You're in the reasonable adjustments realm if you've got a provision criteria on a practice or a physical feature of premises or um, there's a need to provide an auxiliary aid and failing to do so puts a disabled person as a substantial disadvantage con compared to a non-disabled person. Um, if you're ever looking at reasonable adjustments, there's a very helpful uh, code of practice published by the Equality and Human Rights Commission, um, which has got lots of examples of what might um, a reasonable adjustment be and when you need to do it. <coughs> So I've picked out some of the more obvious examples from the code there, reallocating duties, moving to another role, changing hours, allowing a person to be absent for treatment rehabilitation, changing redundancy criteria and so on. But how do you decide if in a particular case a reasonable an adjustment is in fact reasonable? Well, again, uh, the Code's got some very helpful guidance on this and identifies some possible considerations, such as, obviously, would the adjustment work? How practical is it? Um, how much would it affect the employer's activities? How big is the employer? What does it do? But also, as you'll see, um, a few elements of, of cost in there as well. What's the cost of making it? What are the resources available to the employer? Um, both externally and in terms of external support, might there be sort of government help? So clearly cost can play into um, what a reasonable adjustment is.
but that does come with a caveat, um, with some degree of caution, um, because the, the code goes on to say that you know, even if there is a significant uh, cost associated with an adjustment, it might still be reasonable, because you need to look at the cost in a sense of not doing it. What are the countervailing costs of, if this person can't come back to work, of recruiting a replacement um, and training a replacement or bringing in another member of staff? So you may need a relatively extreme situation um, bef before you can rely on, on cost as a justification for not making a reasonable adjustment. Um, and a good example of that is this case of Cordell against the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Mrs Cordell was a, a senior diplomat. Um, she, was she was profoundly deaf. She accepted a job in the British Embassy in Kazakhstan, um, and because of her deafness she required lip speakers to help her. Um, and apparently the cost of that was going to be £250,000 and when the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office realised the cost of this, um, they withdrew the offer. Um, she said, therefore, this was a failure to make reasonable adjustments to not provide these lip speakers for her. And by way of context, she said she'd previously worked in the embassy in Poland, and lip speakers had been provided there at a cost of about 150000 Um And she also made the comparison with... Um, employees who are diplomats who have um, children and there the Foreign and Commonwealth Office provides 25,000 a year for the children to go to, to private school. Um, but the EAT said no, um, this wasn't a reasonable adjustment and they said you know, although an employer is probably going to have to spend some money on reasonable adjustments it shouldn't be viewed as being a bottomless pit in terms of financial support. And in this case, this was clearly a lot of money. It was five times her annual salary. It was more than the cost of all the employees um, employed locally in the embassy. Um, it was a very big part of the budget that the Foreign and Commonwealth Office had put aside for um, reasonable adjustments, disability issues. They had a total budget of £560,000, so there's a big part of that budget. Um, and in terms of the issue of, of uh, people with children in private school, the, the biggest um, expenditure they could find was one uh, family with seven children, which sounds like quite a lot to me. Um, uh, but that still only came to 175000 in in school fees. Um, so clearly the message is that cost can be a factor in regional adjustment considerations, but you need to sort of consider all the, look around all the issues, look at alternatives, look at the countervailing costs, look at the budget, look at costs you're spending on, on other forms to look after other employees before you come to the conclusion that this is too expensive. Um, moving on to uh, age discrimination. Um, as I say on the slide, age discrimination is an area which again is often going to involve balancing the needs of different employees, in this case younger employees versus older employees. Um, age discrimination, unlike other areas of law, um, you can in principle justify direct and indirect discrimination um, for age. And therefore, you can have retirement ages, because clearly that's direct age discrimination, but again, you need to justify them as being a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. So how does that play out in practice? To what extent can you balance the needs of different parts of the workforce, um, particularly in the context of retirement? Well, the courts in, in the UK and in, and in Europe have accepted you can balance the needs of different parts of the workforce. Um, in setting retirement ages. Um, so in the UK, we've, it's been accepted by the Supreme Court that it is a reasonable basis for having a retirement age um, if you're looking to encourage more junior staff to remain with the employer with a view to obtaining advancement or providing access to uh, work opportunities for more junior staff. 
Um, that principle comes from the Selden case, which involved a law firm which had a retirement age of 65 for its partners. Um, and Mr Selden, who'd reached 65, objected to this and brought this claim, which has gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court said, well, yes, this is direct age discrimination in, in principle. And because it's direct discrimination rather than indirect discrimination, you, the employer, are going to have to pass a higher threshold to justify it. You're going to have to show some kind of public policy type of justifications. But things like balancing between different members of the workforce, the younger and older members of the workforce, is in principle the kind of justification that works um, to, to allow for a, a retirement age. Um, similarly, we've had a similar sort of ruling coming out of Europe. Um, the case of Fuchs against Land, Hessen, has said that creating a balanced workforce we have a mixture of young and old staff um, and promoting the recruitment of younger workers is a uh, justification potentially for having a retirement age which clearly affects the older workers. Um, and that case involves compulsory retirement of uh, German civil servants at age 65. But as always, it is a question of degree. So we look at the, the similar case um, that's just been published of uh, Commission Against Hungary um, where the retirement ages for judges in Hungary was reduced from 70 to 62. And again, it was done with the aim of having a more, more of a balance of experience in the workforce um, across the ages. In that case, it was found to be unlawful. Although the aim was legitimate, the way it was done was found to be um, unlawful because it was introduced with um, little in the way of transitional provision. So employees who were probably expecting to be able to work through to age 70 um, were suddenly told, actually, you're only going to be able to work through to A62, so the way in which it was done was unlawful. Does that translate across to other um, contexts? Um, the answer is yes, in principle it does. Again, in principle you, you can balance the needs of, of different uh, parts of your workforce in other contexts as well. So we've got this case of Smith against Strathclyde Clyde Fireboard, where the Fireboard had a, a policy of favouring younger workers, less experienced workers, um, for temporary promotions to fill temporary vacancies and this was justified on the, on the grounds that you need to give the younger employees the experience and balance the experience across the workforce uh, and again it was felt um, yes this is potentially indirect discrimination against older workers because you're favouring the less experienced workers but it's justified because of the need to, to balance experience across the workforce um, but still in other contexts again it is a question of degree um, so you've got this case of uh, Homer against Chief Constable West Yorkshire Police um, where it was found that the requirement to hold a law degree to get um, attain promotion and, and get more money was found to be uh, potentially age discriminatory against uh, Mr Homer um, because he was close to retirement and by the time he got his law degree he would have passed retirement age so he couldn't benefit, uh, from, he couldn't benefit from, from the promotion. Um, so that was found to be potentially discriminatory. Um, I'm going to hand over now to Catherine, who's going to talk about um, balancing uh, against uh, between uh, competing areas. Morning, everyone. Um, so we've seen quite a few cases in the last couple of years about employees uh, with competing protected characteristics sort of challenging... Uh, their employers on the basis that their protected characteristic is clashing up against somebody else's protected characteristic. It's been quite a controversial area um, 
there have been quite a few high-profile cases which have been shown in the news, um, some of which I'm going to come on and talk to you, and you may well have heard of them. Um, and it's also prompted intervention by the former Archbishop of Canterbury saying that um, the law isn't doing enough to protect, in particular, Christians, um, but other religions as well. So looking, first of all, in that context, at the clash between um, employees with religious beliefs and either employees or cu uh, customers, clients, um, of, of um, you know, usually who are homosexual, um, so there's sexual orientation discrimination. There's a couple of cases here. The first one, Bull versus Hall, it's not a case in the employment context. Um, it's about the provision of goods and services, but you may well have heard of this case because it was, it was quite high profile in the news at the time. The, this case involved um, two civil partners who booked into a bed and breakfast um, accommodation that was run by a Christian couple. And the Christian couple refused them a room on the basis that they had a policy of only allowing heterosexual couples to stay in the same bedroom. Um, the owners claimed that this wasn't discrimination on the grounds of the individual's sexual orientation, but was because of their own religious views on sex outside marriage. And in other words, they said, they claimed that the same objection would apply equally to non-married heterosexual couples. The tribunal in this, or the, the, sorry, it was in the High Court because it wasn't in, in the employment context, but the court in this case said that um, when you're looking at whether someone has been treated less favourably on the grounds of their sexual orientation, and in particular if they're a civil partner, the fact that they're a civil partner and somebody else that they're comparing themselves to is married isn't a material difference. So a civil partner can compare themselves to a married person and, and point to that person and say, I've been treated less favourably than a married person and therefore that amounts to discrimination. Um, so in this context, the, the two civil partners could point to married heterosexual couple and say, we've been treated less favourably than they would have been treated and therefore that amounts to discrimination. So just looking at that in the employment context and how that might apply, how that might arise in the employment context, I guess the first thing that springs to my mind is um, when you're offering benefits to um, married spouses, um, you should also bear in mind that you know, a civil partner is also going to be able to point to that married spouse and say, I should be receiving the same benefits um, because there's no material difference between us. Moving on then to look at another couple of cases about that tension between someone's religious beliefs and sexual orientation. These two cases of Liddell and McFarlane, they were in the employment context and they're actually quite similar cases. So in Liddell, um, Liddell involved um, an employee of the London Borough of Islington who worked in a registry office there. And again, this is a case that was in the news at the time. Um, she was a registrar who refused to perform civil partnership ceremonies in light of her religious beliefs um, and the council threatened her with dismissal. And likewise, McFarlane, that was a case of a relationship counsellor at Relate who refused to counsel same-sex couples on sexual matters and in that case the employee was dismissed. In both cases, the individuals brought, brought discrimination claims against their employers and in both cases, the Employment Tribunal held that, first of all, there was no direct discrimination because the treatment of both employees was because of their refusal to carry out their duties rather than their religious beliefs. That was the finding of the tribunal. 
And likewise, the tribunal found that there was no indirect discrimination because although they had been treated, uh, although there was a provision criterion or practice which um, had a, a negative effect on them, the, that was justified or the treatment was justified because the council in the case of Liddell and Relate in the McFarlane case were both pursuing legitimate aims, namely the um, provision of services on an equal opportunities basis to customers um, and the courts, the tribunal found that this was a proportionate means of achieving that legitimate aim to discipline and dismiss the employees for failure to, failure to do that. Just one thing to note on both of those cases is that the individuals, the employees in those cases have actually challenged um, the decisions and challenged the UK government at the European Court of Human Rights. Um, it's not a direct appeal of, of those cases, but it's more a challenge that the UK government has failed to um, implement Article 9 of the Human Rights Act, or the European Convention on Human Rights, by, which is the um, right to have freedom of religion, and in particular to be able to manifest a religion. So in other words, to be able to practice a religion freely and to um, hold yourself out as a member of a religion. So that's currently going to the European Court of Human Rights, um, and we'll wait to see what happens on that. Um, but it may be that the court decides that those cases aren't compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights, so there may be some revision of that. Those two cases are cases, obviously, in, in that kind of public sector sphere of their individuals who are employed by a public sector body to provide services to the wider community. So looking at that, it's more difficult to see that kind of case arising in the, in the private sector sphere for employers. But... That said, there is the case of Smith and Trafford Housing Trust, um, which is one example of, of sort of shifting into the, the private sector and how it might affect you as employers. Um, just to talk a, a little bit of detail about this case, Smith was a, a manager of Trafford Housing Trust. He had a Facebook account, um, and on it he was friends with about 45 colleagues uh, on Facebook. He posted a link on his Facebook account to a news article about gay marriage in churches and the government's proposals to introduce or to require churches to marry gay couples rather than just having the state civil partnership option. He posted that link and then he commented underneath it, an equality too far. Um, Mr Smith was an evangelical Christian. A colleague then responded to that post saying, does this mean you don't approve? And he commented back, no, not really, um, you know, I don't, don't see why the church, in fairly measured tones he sort of said, he, don't, he doesn't see why the state should intervene and require churches to marry gay couples, put very briefly. Um, the employee who responded to his post then complained to their employer and the employer disciplined him and although they didn't dismiss Mr Smith, they did demote him and then Mr Smith challenged that demotion in the court. The court found that this demotion was a breach of his employment contract. The, the, the employer didn't have a right to do that. Um, and in particular, they looked at the reasons why the demotion had been imposed. The first reason that the, the trust had used was that the Facebook posts had brought the employer into disrepute. And the court disagreed with that and said... 
the comments he made on his Facebook account weren't capable of bringing the trust into disrepute. No reasonable person would think he was expressing view, his views on behalf of the trust, and therefore it wouldn't bring the trust into disrepute. The court also held that the, held that the views were moderately expressed, they were outside of his working hours, and they wouldn't lead a reasonable person to think the worst of the trust for having employed him. The other reason that the trust relied on to demote him was that there was an obligation in the code of conduct of the trust not to promote religious beliefs. But the court held that that obligation in his code of conduct didn't extend to his Facebook wall, as that would be too much of a a fetter on the um, freedom of speech. The court noted that a difference in views is bound to cause upset, but that's the price of, of freedom of speech. So I think the thing to take away from that is two things to take away from that in terms of the clash between competing protected characteristics you know there is a freedom of expression and employees do have a freedom to manifest their religion in their private life Um, so if someone's posting something on Facebook or or something like that or someone says something outside of the work context there's not a lot that an employer can do that do about that but Equally, you know, you may be entitled as an employer to require employees to temper their views within the workplace, given the need to be conscious of other people's um, views. And also, and this is a kind of wider point about um, the use of Facebook and social media generally, employers do tend to rely on damage to their reputation when they're disciplining employees for the use of social media. But I think this case just highlights that you need to be careful that there is real reputational damage before you, you do that. Obviously, that's sort of a wider point outside of just discrimination angle, but also any other comments made on Facebook. So that's religion and and clashing with sexual orientation. There's also been some cases about um, employees on pregnant or who are on maternity leave and that clashing with the rights of of male employees. Um, And this is highlighted by the case of DeBellin and Eversheds. So this is a case involving redundancy selection. Eversheds, a law firm, was making a number of lawyers redundant, um, and in selecting the employees to be made redundant, they had um, one of the employees was, uh, I think she'd been on maternity leave, and when they came to score her, um, they inflated her score and gave her the maximum score possible because she'd been absent for the period that they were assessing. The ma- a male colleague who was in the pool with her and who scored less than her as a result of that inflation claimed that that was discrimination. And the tribunal agreed with him. The tribunal found that pregnant employees and those on maternity leave should only be treated more favourably than male colleagues to the extent that it's reasonably necessary to remove the disadvantages associated with either being pregnant or being on maternity leave. And in this case, they found that Eversheds had gone too far by giving her the maximum score and there were less discriminatory alternatives available to Eversheds such as measuring both employees' actual performance before they were on maternity leave. And you can see how this could arise not just in a a redundancy context but also in other contexts like pay rises for example. If, If you're giving an employee who's on maternity leave a pay rise and you give them the maximum pay rise a male colleague may argue well that's not justified and, and it's discriminatory to me. So I think the, the key takeaway from that is just be careful not to, not to go too far when making those adjustments. Um, and just another sort of a slightly um, separate point 
is just a note on redundancies that when you're thinking about suitable alternative vacancies um, and putting employees in suitable alternative vacancies, there's almost kind of a hierarchy that's formed by the case law. So uh, case law and legislation. So employees who are pregnant or on maternity leave have the right under Regulation 10 of the Maternity and Paternity Leave Regulations to have priority for any suitable alternative vacancies over other employees who are at risk of redundancy. But then there's also protection, uh, in theory at least, for, for disabled employees. Um, there, is, there is a bit of debate about this because there's, there's a case... Um, Archibald and Fife. I was just chatting to a, a lady before and she mentioned this case to me. This is a, a case about a disabled employee who um, was a, a street sweeper and was found to be un, uh, unable to continue in that role. Uh, it's not, it wasn't in the redundancy, redundancy context, but in that case the um, tribunal held that the employee should be put straight into another role without a competitive interview process. And there's some arguments as to whether that should apply also in a in a um, redundancy context. So, in other words, if you're having a if if there are suitable alternative vacancies and you're having a competitive interview process for those vacancies, whether you should make an adjustment and not require the disabled employee to go through that competitive process. That case has been subsequently doubted. So, I don't think that disabled employees jump up the order of hierarchy in those circumstances but having said that you do have a duty to consider making reasonable adjustments um, as Chris has mentioned and so you should think about whether there are adjustments that are required to the selection process which may then bump up the disabled employee up the up the kind of scale um, so that's again a, a sort of tension between different protected characteristics there so moving on to the next topic, which is um, actually a topic that we get. It's probably one of the most common questions that we get as employment lawyers. We have an employee, she's been signed, he or she has been signed off with stress. What do we do? What can we do? Is it a disability? And that sort of thing. So looking first at the definition of disability under the Equality Act, as you'll see from the slide, you, the employee will have to show that they have a physical or mental impairment which has adverse effects that are substantial and long-term and that affect their ability to carry out normal day-to-day -day activities. So the focus is on the employee's mental or physical con condition and its effects, not on the employee's ability to do their particular job. So just because a mental or physical impairment makes it difficult for the employee to carry out their particular job. That's not conclusive of whether they have a disability for the purposes of the Equality Act. And it's a question of the degree of the effects and also the length of those effects and the, the prognosis. So it's probably helpful just to look at um, the historic position of what amounts to a physical or mental impairment just to help us understand where we are now with it. So under the old Disability Discrimination Act, uh, a physical or mental impairment had to be clinically well recognised. And in particular, the case of Morgan set out that that meant that it needed to be recognised in the World Health Organisation International Classification of Diseases, or recognised by a respected body of medical opinion, or um, was proven by specific medical evidence. This created issues because the World Health Organization classification required specific symptoms over a minimum specified period 
or of a minimum specified frequency. So something like clinical depression without any more evidence was insufficient. Um, and also there were issues around the fact that severe mental illnesses may not have a clear diagnosis or may have different diagnoses at different times. So that prompted a change in the law, and that was removed from the legislation in 2005. So now the focus, rather than having to show that um, the mental impairment is a clinically well-recognised one, the focus is now turned about so that now the tribunal focuses on the effect that the impairment has on the employee's day-to-day activities. So the case of J versus DLA Piper is the case in which this test was introduced. And just to explain a little bit of background about this case... um, Jay was a barrister who had suffered a past history of depression. She was offered a job by law firm DLA Piper, and sorry, all the cases seem to be about law firms for some reason, Um, but that offer was subject to her completing medical questionnaire. She didn't fill out the medical questionnaire, but she did tell DLA about her history of depression. I believe she spoke to an HR person at DLA and the the HR person was quite unsympathetic and told her that she should reconsider accepting the offer. Um, A couple of days later, when she hadn't reconsidered accepting the offer, um, she was contacted by DLA and told that in light of the downturn in the economy, there had been a recruitment freeze and her offer of employment was withdrawn. She understandably brought a claim claiming that she had been discriminated against on the grounds of her disability and the fact that she'd told DLA about her history of depression. The question arose as to whether she was actually disabled at the date of the alleged discrimination by DLA. She had a past history of depression, but was she still suffering from depression at that time? And she brought medical evidence that she was suffering from symptoms of extreme tiredness, anxiety and low moods and that that affected her ability to do her day-to-day activities and was substantial and long-term. The court in this case, or the tribunal in this case, took the approach that she had some sort of an impairment because that was evident from the fact that she had all of these adverse effects. She, was, uh, she had extreme tiredness and anxiety and low moods and it was affecting her activities. So it didn't need to necessarily have proof that she had an impairment because she was looking at the effects first. Um, this, this approach has actually opened the door to sort of less well-known forms of, of depression and other mental illnesses and that sort of thing. Um, but the difficulty with something like stress is that the te- there's still a test that the impairment must last or be likely to last for at least a year. And so with something like stress... the employee may struggle to show that it's likely to last for a year, particularly if it's what they call event-specific stress, so something that's arising from, for example, a bereavement or marriage breakup. That's less likely to last for that long and therefore less likely to qualify as a a disability. And the, the courts have held that what they mean by likely is could well happen, which strikes me as quite a low test. Um... Yeah, to me, likely would be, you know, probably will happen rather than could well happen. But that's a semantic distinction. Um, So applying that to stress and depression, applying that test to stress and depression, as we've said, stress is unlikely to have that long-term 
effects, so may not be a disability in itself. But stress may exacerbate other conditions, for example, epilepsy, or the employee may be suffering from a stress-related illness, such as clinical depression, or the employee may have post-traumatic stress disorder triggered by a specific event, which does have a longer-term effect. In terms of depression... Depression certainly is capable of, of being a disability, but it depends on its severity, it depends on its effects, and it depends on the, the long-term nature of it. Something I've learned from just, just sort of researching this and looking at the slides, I hadn't appreciated before that when a, when a doctor says clinical depression, that's also obviously the most severe form of depression, and clinical depression almost, you know, it, it's much more likely to be a, a disability um, rather than just stress slash depression. Um, <coughs> So I hope that's a helpful guidance, but the practical steps, really what, really what we're coming out at here and saying is that actually, you know, you as an employer are unlikely to be able to make those judgments yourself. You're going to need to take medical advice on whether, what the effects are, whether they're long-term, whether they're likely to be long-term. And that will obviously involve either seeking an independent medical opinion on the employee or seeking a report from the employee's doctor. Um, in addition sorry I'm just swapping my slides around so once you've sought the advice from the doctor um, you can then see what the likely prognosis is and if the employee is likely to be able to return to work in the short term uh, that you then need to consider whether you can make reasonable adjustments to assist them to return to work such as a phased return, that sort of thing. Um, a lot of people ask whether you're able to hire someone else to cover the employee while they're off sick. Um, I always say you know, it's absolutely fine to hire someone on a temporary basis to cover someone who's off sick, especially when you've had a medical report and you know that someone's going to be off sick for another six months or so. Um, and if, if having received the medical report... Um, there's going to be a lengthy absence or it looks unlikely that they're going to be return, able to return to work in the foreseeable future, then obviously you can think about a capability dismissal, provided that you follow fair procedures and that sort of thing. But I would just flag that um, you need to bear in mind whether an employee is a member of your PHI, Permanent Health Insurance Scheme, because if, if they are, then you can't dismiss them um, or you shouldn't dismiss them during the... Um, either during the period in the run-up to the qualification for that benefit or whilst they're on receiving that benefit. That's just something to bear in mind if you do have a PHI scheme. Finally, just moving on to look at the government's reform proposals um, in this area of, of dis discrimination. There's actually a bill going through Parliament at the moment, uh, I think it's at the House of Lords committee stage this week, um, the Enterprise and Regulatory Reform Bill. And what that does, it, it sort of undoes some of the work done by the previous government, um, <laughs> interestingly, which hasn't actually been enforced for that long. Um, so under the Equality Act, there were provisions included to, um, which state that if an employee is harassed at work by a third party, and that happens on more than one occasion, and the employer fails to take reasonable steps to prevent that harassment, then the employee can bring, bring a claim about that. That's going to be removed. Um, but that said, I'm not sure that has that much of an effect because you've still got the Protection from Harassment Act um, under which employees are protected anyway. Maybe that's why they're removing this, because 
it's it's protected by other means. The the bill also abolishes discrimination questionnaires. If you've ever had a um, disability or or any other type of discrimination claim brought against you as an employer, you and you've had to f- complete a discrimination questionnaire, you'll know the pain and very lengthy process involved um, and it's very costly as well but actually no one ever looks at them once you've done them that's it I mean they're supposed to be there so that um, you know the tribunal can draw inferences from them um, and to set out some of the facts are supposed to provide the employee with more information that may potentially help them in their discrimination claim but in reality in my experience they're very rarely looked at by the court or tribunal so they're being abolished um, Something else that was introduced by the Equality Act was the power of the tribunal to make recommendations, not just in respect of the employee who's brought the claim, but also in terms of the wider workforce. So if there's a discriminatory policy, not just saying that employee shouldn't be affected by that, but also you should remove that for the wider workforce. Again, that power is being removed. So these are all relatively positive things for employers, I think. Um, And then there's also some reform of the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission. Just also to mention um, the EU directive or EU draft directive to combat boardroom inequality. Um, this is a proposal by the European Commission that listed companies will have to have a minimum of 40% of their non-executive directors um, as women by uh, 20, January 2020. Although that said, that is what they've described as a non-binding target so I guess it's just an, an embarrassment thing. I think I think they're going to be listed companies are going to be required to report on that, um, and their failure or not to meet that. Um, and also, they're going to have the ability to give priority to candidates of the underrepresented gender when they're appointing non-executives.